0: Welcome to the Industry Insights by SAP podcast series. I'm delighted to host this podcast and share key trends and innovations for each of the 25 industries we serve. At SAP, we like to say that we speak the language of our customers, and this language is industry. We've been supporting all industries for more than 50 years now, and it's exciting to launch this podcast and discuss with industry experts the business value that they get from our solutions. Hi, everyone. My name is Tom Raftery with SAP. And with me on the show today, I have my special guest, Jeff. Jeff, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you, Tom. My name is Jeff Howell, and I'm the head of the high-tech industry business unit at SAP. And it's basically my job to make sure that SAP is providing solutions to the high-tech industry that are relevant for them over the next two to five years.
0: Okay. And
1: I mean that must be a a, f- a fun place
0: to be in actually high tech because I I'm I'm very ADD always have been and it's why I got into science first and then tech afterwards because it's there's always something new and fun and happening there is are you similar is that what got you into high tech?
1: Yeah, actually, well, I. Come from a, a little bit of a lineage of high tech. My dad was an an engineer, an electrical engineer in Silicon Valley back when Silicon Valley was just getting started. Oh wow. And I remember when I was out of college, I had two job offers, one to work in a semiconductor company and the other work, work in a lock company. <laughs> and two very different yeah, yeah. opportunities. Choices, and choices. I, and quite frankly, I just wanted a job. And my dad <laughs> says, you know, this chip stuff is never gonna go away. Mm-hmm. No, now, I don't think locks are either, but it was uh, I think a really good piece of advice from my dad. So that's sure. that's how I got into it. Well,
0: locks are not going away, but they're becoming smart. They're they're requiring chips more more and more now. So <laughs> they are converging finally. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But that's a a nice segue, actually, because the reason we have you on the podcast is because you wrote a point of view document on the chip shortage. So uh, this is, I mean, your your father said chips are never going away, but they're actually becoming harder to get,
1: right? That's right. And this um, chip shortage paper was kind of swimming around in my mind when uh, my wife and I went out earlier in the year to buy some new appliances for the kitchen. And they said, well, if you want an appliance that doesn't need a chip, like a range top, I can get, get that one right away. But the ovens? Nope, because there's a lot of chips in there. And then we live out in the country, also wanted a pickup truck, couldn't get a pickup truck. Same reason. So that, you know, this is a real big problem and you don't have to look very far to find just news of the week where some manufacturer or there was some disruption in the supply chain because of the chip. So yeah. that was sort of swimming around in my mind. I said, well, it's time to write a paper about this because I think, you know, we can have a good point of view with our background here in the industry.
0: Okay. So what's involved in in, in writing a paper like that and and what kind of outcomes did you get from it? What what did you find out when you when you went to write this? Because we, we've all read the headlines and we're all aware of some of the stories that are going on, but that's not from having done much research. That's just from reading a couple of articles. What did what did you well like I said, what what's involved and what did you find?
1: Well what's involved is just you know starting with some kind of passion because it's not like you know we all wake up in the morning and say hey let's let's just write a paper. I mean that's <laughs> something that doesn't come very natural to us and And so I would say it starts with some level of passion or some interest in it. And we knew that a lot of our customers at SAP were experiencing a lot of um, challenges around this, this problem. And then what's involved is just getting the right people together to collaborate on, you know, what, what do we really see as the, as the root cause of this problem? You know, how is it impacting our customers and, you know, what could we do about it? What suggestions could we offer what kind of like we said a point of view could we provide our customers so they have some confidence that yeah there is a path to solving this and so i would say it's just pulling the right people together because it's a very complex problem okay and what were the findings what did you find talk me
0: through the the document itself
1: yeah so it's it's first of all we had to say okay what what are we trying to contained, like, how are we going to scope this thing? We said, okay, what are the big, you know, outcomes that our, our customers could or should expect from, from a document like this and how it would impact their business? We said, well, there's really three things. Um, how can they improve the relationship with their customers? Mm-hmm. So maintaining customer expectations is one. Um, maintaining revenue continuity is another. And then finally, how do we prevent or at least establish better processes, so the next disruption that happens isn't quite so violent or disruptive. Mm-hmm. So that's those are the three things we we're hoping that the readers of this document would see as a as a path to addressing those those issues. And and what we found when we dug into it was um, this is not the first chip shortage the world is seen. Right. Um, there was one back in the late '80s. Um, We also have, you know, that was kind of geopolitical between the U.S. and Japan. And then we also had one, I think, in the early 2000s. Um, And then, of course, natural disasters will have an impact on these as well. And so but we did find that this was probably the most amplified of the previous chip shortages and the longest lasting. I mean, they're saying that depending on the report you read, this is going to go well into this year and likely into next year. And that's one of the, one of the things that we found out of this, but the reason this is so, so much more amplified than the previous chip shortages we've had is that um, semiconductor chips are so prolific. I mean, they're, they're in everywhere. In fact, we found um, a source where just in the U S alone, semiconductors make up 0.3% of the U S GDP, but are required for uh, 12% of our national output. Oh. So the lever that these chips have in the overall economy just in the U.S. is very significant. Of course, it goes beyond the U.S. But that's that's one of the big findings through this process. Yeah, you know, I mean, wherever there,
0: yeah. You, you talked about there being a requirement for chips in your oven. I mean, if I look at my desk here, pretty much everything on my desk has chips in it in some form. Even I have two lights pointed at me there, uh, you know, just for shooting video, for example, and they've got chips built into them because they're, I, can, I can turn them on and off and control the color and the brightness from my phone, you know, so they're they're on Wi-Fi. So e- even the lights in the room have, have chips in them. Everything these days has chips in them. So I, I got to think that's part of why we've hit the shortage. The demand has increased, I'd want to say exponentially, but the demand has increased enormously, and there was a, a wobble in the in, in the in the output when we hit COVID.
1: Well, yeah, and and COVID is is the um, kind of the poster child that a lot of people would like to point to for a number of things. Mm-hmm. But you know, when we looked at it, you know, sure it had an effect in so much as a lot of the plants and the manufacturing facilities are used to make chips, or even the equipment that use are used to make the chips you know, they ran reduced shifts and early in COVID. And so we lost a little bit of capacity there, but it was really the confluence of multiple things kind of hitting all at once, or I should say over a very short amount of time. You know, one you mentioned, you know, in your home office. Well, when we, when COVID hit, one of the things that happened was many employees, not just in the high tech industry, but across multiple industries, established you know um a work from home policy yeah so and what that did is as you saw in your your office everything you know so people were building out their home offices that required chips and the bandwidth requirements for video calls just catapulted right mm-hmm. so that was one of the big ones and then we also had some you know trade activities between say the us and china was one um and as China was trying to build out their capacity to produce more chips, because they saw the demand increasing. Well, they also put uh, the sanctions were driving some some nervous behavior with uh, the OEMs in China, who said, wow, this this could be a problem. We may not get the chips that we need from the US because of the sanctions. Therefore, we're gonna start building up inventory of this to get ahead of it, because they didn't want corruption. And then we also had some other things around COVID where the automotive industry actually, you know, reduced their forecast temporarily and tried to get back in line again. And that Mm -hmm. was a big one, but that, you know, that's on the demand side of the equation, but then on the supply side of the equation, around the same time, there was a fire in one of uh, the facilities in Japan that produced a lot of automotive chips. And then the U.S. put sanctions on the equipment that's used to make chips on China. So China couldn't get the, the equipment they needed to make the chips. Uh, that happened in December of 2020. So it's really, you know, I would say that if any one or two of these hit in that same period of time, I suspect that that there was probably enough slack in the system to absorb most of that. But it was all of that hitting at once. It was the you know, it was perfect storm. Yeah, 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 that's right. OK. And you, you mentioned in the the
0: point of view document, you look at how it has affected our customers. And so, yeah, how has it affected our customers?
1: Well, it's, uh, like I said, a personal example, you know, all the way at the end of the value chain, a consumer like you or I, um, getting a pickup truck was a problem, getting appliances is a problem, but then they also had, you know, farm equipment was sitting idle waiting for, for chips to mm-hmm. complete it. And it just, it just got it manifested throughout the entire economy, a lot of the economy anyway. So, um, there's a lot of frustration. You know, I always define frustration as when uh, your expectations exceed reality. And so so people expected to get things uh, when they wanted it, but that just didn't happen. So there's a lot of yeah. frustration.
0: Yeah, my, my poor 15-year-old son was hoping to get an Xbox Series X. And, of course, <laughs> zero chances of that happening. Yeah, right. <laughs> Being a bit glib there, but how, so how are, how are our customers responding? I mean, what are they doing to, I mean, there, there gotta be some way dynamic in, in, in reacting to this?
1: Yes. And that's, that's something we point out in the paper, you know, what are customers doing today? And at SAP and our partner system, we're not so bold and arrogant to ever believe that our customers are just standing watching it happen. It, that's not at all what's going on. I mean, our customers are. You know they have a lot of very smart people working incredible long hours to try and you know get through this. and And there's a number of things that they're doing. Um, and i would I would categorize it in probably three time horizons. Things they're working on today, obviously, there's the immediate. that's a lot of firefighting that's going on.. Um, you know, just looking for daily updates and even some cases, hourly updates, you know, when are we going to get these chips so we can finish our production? That's one. Then there's a near term that's sort of like, well, today they got to, they got to put something in place, whether it's processes or tools that will help them, you know, um, through maybe month six through month 12. So it's just kind of that near term. So maybe there's a stop gap we can we can plan for today that helps us in the near term. And then finally, there's there's some things that they're doing today uh, for the long term. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's that's really the other word we put on that is how are they building resilience? So the next, and it will be inevitable, there will be another disruption. It could be an excess of supply disruption, it could be another shortage, but you know, how will they um create the systems and the processes so the next thing that happens, they're going to be a lot more resilient. So that's how I would put it. I put in those three categories of kind of the immediate, near-term, and long-term. Okay. So one story I've heard,
0: and I'm not sure how true this is. I, I suspect it is. But it's it's about Tesla, for example, and what they've done to make sure that they weren't as heavily impacted as other auto manufacturers. And it was because they fully controlled their software stack, they were able to rewrite it so that it would match whatever semiconductor chips they could get their hands on. And, you know, that that's the beauty of being very vertically integrated, I guess. Are there any other interesting examples like that that you've come
1: across yeah there's uh, um there's a couple interesting examples that you know we've seen one is um what we call match set optimization and so the there's an old mathematical principle called uh, the baker's problem where the baker makes multiple things cakes pies cookies and in order to complete that um, they have to decide given the supply what do i make And um, there's also a a belief that, well, I don't want to allocate all of my chocolate to cookies because maybe I won't make as much money overall. And if I'm limited on chocolate, that's how I'm going to do it. But some of those ingredients or products actually share eggs and milk and flour. So the question is, given my supply, what do I make? And that's what we call match set optimization. And you, it also, you want to reduce the amount of stranded inventory. So, mm-hmm. in that example, you know, you want to make sure you're exhausting as much of the inventory as possible. You know, the, in the baker's problem, you can't put the cake in the oven unless you have all the ingredients. So, it doesn't do you any sure. good to have everything except the eggs, for example. Mm-hmm. So, when you think about that, it's like when you're making cars yeah, well, you know, <laughs> do you want to buy all the inventory and and not have the chips? So the question is, you know, given the chips that are available, which cars should I make? And that's something that I think um, companies are now starting to look at in addition to their traditional planning methods where they say, oh, let's let's go try and capture what customers want to buy. Well, that's that used to be the primary planning approach demand driven. Now we're going to couple that with another voice at the table says, aha, but this is all that I have available. So how do we marry that together to come up with a a plan? Okay. And, you know, looking looking
0: forward, as you pointed out, this is unlikely to be the last time that there's a a chip shortage or some other kind of big shortage that impacts uh, manufacturers. What can they do to Minimize the impacts of something like this in the in the future.
1: Yeah, this um, this is a big, challenging question, and there's a couple of our customers. Um, ZF is a company that makes a lot of the platforms for the automotive industry, and there's an initiative called Katana X, which is this open source initiative. It's basically an automotive network that's starting in Europe. And what ZF is doing is now talking to their suppliers like Wolfspeed is a company that produces the, the, the chips that are used to regulate power in those chip in the, in the vehicle. And they're now saying, well, Wolfspeed, we'd like you to be on this network. So it's the big automotive OEMs inviting multiple uh, a customers on their, or excuse me, their suppliers on their network. And there's just suppliers, suppliers will be on and so on. So that end tier value chain is going to be on a single network. And the vision is that when an OEM says we're going to reduce the forecast of our vehicles, but we don't want to just necessarily reduce the forecast of the chips. They're going to be using the vehicles. Cause maybe I still want some safety stock of the chips. Mm-hmm. So if demand goes back up, I still have it, but my chip suppliers will know about that immediately. It's kind of like the pebble in the pond, that ripple will, will be visible to everybody. And the other thing that is gonna happen out of this network, this automotive network, is they won't be simply exchanging information about forecasts and commits. This is how many I want, when, when will I get them? But it'll also have uh, sustainability information that's gonna be provided. So now the the automotive OEMs in this example will not only get their logistics information, but they'll also get the sustainability information from from their entire network. Nice. And is that just European OEMs? Uh, as of now, that's it. But we're starting to see that there's other initiatives and other networks that are that are starting to build in other countries and so on. But it's it seems to be starting with the Europeans.
0: Okay. So it's. And that's just the one industry, that's just automotive. But what it what it says is that one of the big answers to this is access to data, it's visibility of data and information. So, I mean, bottom line, that's what we need to do. It doesn't have to be Catena X, it ha- but it has to be in all industries that we need to have better visibility of what's going on
1: that's exactly right and in fact that's one of the three tenets that we talk about in this paper it's um as you said it's visibility um but it's also insight and mm. collaboration and it's all three of those working together so visibility is like the example i gave you know I'm providing a forecast and then they say okay here's the commit and it's kind of like where's my stuff and when are we getting it so like what's going mm-hmm. on in that network but insight's a little different. Now it's it's subtle, but um, where insight comes into is when they're producing chips. Four of the five months that it takes to get your cell phone, for example, it's spent in a front end fab, just making the chip. Well, in that four months, a lot can happen. Even in the best of times, you know, we could have big yield losses. There could be um, you know overrun of capacity. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen in these over 1,000 steps it takes to make a chip. And the question is, in that four-month period, you're getting those chips whether you want them or not, but are you going to get 100 dye, what they call good dye per wafer, or is it 120? Same equipment, same period of time. And so there's a lot of data that's used to create those chips, and you know, we found a source that 80% of that data is never looked at. Because there's just too much well, of it. And right. And so what what if there were hidden truths in that data while they're making those chips um, that could help the semiconductor company work with the OEMs to say, hey, you know what? We seem to be falling off the yield cliff here. you know um, or maybe maybe we have satellite grade level reliability, for a cell phone that's only going to last three years in the field. Maybe, maybe we can at least use that data to have a different kind of conversation with the OEM to see if we can improve the yields. Okay.
0: And is that, is the that awareness of the need for that insight? Is that common you know are are people starting to become aware of it or where are we in that spectrum yeah and the
1: way, well the way it typically works is um you know there's process engineers and they they will vector in on a problem when when the problem comes up so they can say no, no no i need to see that data because there seems to be some failures out here but exception management yeah that's right and it's no fault of the company these are very very smart people and it's just a capacity thing right we're yeah creating, you know, I think it's 15 gigabytes per wafer times 25 wafers times 100,000 wafers a quarter. We're talking about a lot of data and no human could be ever expected to to analyze that. Um, that's why they have these systems that could, you know, pull it together. And so you would augment that current process with this other approach. Right. Okay. Maybe you run it through an AI or something that's to- Exactly right.
0: Look look for some kind of weirdness and go, maybe you wanna take a look at this because it's a bit out of the ordinary.
1: That's right, a more proactive approach. So right now we've got a very reactive approach, but this is proactive. We're gonna go and like you said, there's there's AI and machine learning algorithms that can be applied to that big volume of data to say, keep doing that, but we also wanna bring another voice at the table. And this is what the AI ML big data voice is telling us. It's telling us that we're about to fall off the yield cliff or we might be able to relax things um, without compromising quality. So there's a lot of what we think is hidden hidden truths in that data, but they're just not looked at yet. And what about third-party data?
0: Things like, I don't know, looking at social media looking at geopolitics looking at all kinds of external factors weather stuff i mean there was a big drought in taiwan which is yeah. affecting the fabs for a while these kind of things Are, is that part of the mix
1: as well yeah absolutely and and that that kind of gets more into the front end forecast you know when we're thinking about you know like the home office example yeah yeah i mean no i don't know that anybody really predicted that we were going to need to have multiple monitors and mice and keyboards i mean that happened very very quickly mm. um but you also brought up a very good point about the kind of the, the droughts in taiwan um taiwan produces quite a bit of our semiconductor needs on the planet yeah. and you know there was a drought and just by way of contrast you know, fab probably uses anywhere from two to four million gallons of ultra pure water a day. So there, you know, we kind of go back to that network and the insight. A lot of semiconductor companies are now working to see, okay, can we reduce the amount of consumption of not just power, but that ultra pure water? Can we recycle more of that water? And so that's that's becoming more and more evident. Because if we don't have enough water, we can't make enough chips. So
0: that's... Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mentioned geopolitics and uh, having a lot of fabs in Taiwan is maybe not such a good
1: idea. Well, yeah, and that's um, that's a very good one. In fact, <laughs> there's a number of um, initiatives to reshore these fabs back to Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. The European Commission is now been recommending an initiative that's getting significant funding now in Europe to rebuild europe's capacity so they're not as dependent on external countries for their for the chip requirements and what's ha- what's interesting in europe is this uh this chip act as they're calling it is intended to restore europe's presence in the in the chip market so for example um europe used to have i think in early 2000s 20 20% percent of all the chips manufactured in the world came from europe it's now down to 10 percent okay. so Um, so they're trying to rebuild this, not just in volume, but also in technology. Well, there's going to be some challenges around, you know, do we have enough of the right people who can, who can staff these fabs, you know, not just the engineers, but also the operators. Uh, this is going to be a challenge and not just for Europe, but also in the U S as this reshoring takes place. Interesting. Yeah.
0: We are coming towards the end of the podcast now, Jeff. Is there any question that I haven't asked that you wish I had or any aspect of this that we've not touched on that you think it's important for people to be aware of?
1: Yeah, I think um, the other one is just the emphasis of of um, the sustainability requirements on this. You know, when, when we really look at yields, for example, you know, I can use that example, are we going to get 100 good die per wafer? Are we going to get... 120 or maybe even 150 good dye per wafer as an example, you got to remember if we can figure out how to improve the yields in that very long process, four-month-long process, if we get more dye per wafer and we can be smarter about the decision-making on on these good dye per wafer, we're going to start fewer wafers, Mm. which is really good for the environment it's or i should say it's better for the environment so and i think in that case companies will achieve their goal maintain more revenue continuity greater resilience and of course meeting their customer expectations okay superb
0: jeff if people want to know more about yourself about yourself jeff howell or about the point of view paper we talked about or about any of the other topics we discussed in the podcast today where would you have me direct them
1: I would say to uh, my LinkedIn profile is a good place to go. And I think uh, that's the best way I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. And so happy to respond to any inquiries or, or even questions or comments. And I'd love to hear from other folks too. And, um, this, this paper does have a little bit of controversy in it. So I expect oh, good. people to, to react and I'd love to hear <laughs> from them. And, um, so yeah, I'd say my LinkedIn profile is the best. And where can people find the paper? uh sap.com
0: and we'll provide the link for that okay i'll stick that in the show notes so people have access to it you mentioned in the prep as well that there's a a couple of interesting videos around this
1: yeah we um we created some videos because some of these concepts are very complicated things like yield management and um, some of the plant maintenance which we didn't really get into today but what we did we took some of these concepts from the paper and created some videos they're also on sap.com they're four or five minutes in length but they're entertaining it and it's just a an easy way to kind of understand some of these concepts and so that's another resource i'd recommend too if you're not into reading a long white paper so <laughs>
0: <laughs> great i'll put links to the the videos and the, uh, the the show notes for this podcast as well so people have access to those too. great Jeff, that's been really, really interesting. And uh, I look forward to reading that paper myself and maybe watching the videos too first so that I have a bit of a a handle on it before I I head into the paper. Uh, Thanks a million for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much, Tom. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Industry Insights by SAP podcast. If you want to explore our industry portfolio to find the solutions you need to run your business better, faster, and simpler, please visit us at sap.com slash industries.